This week on the show, we have the fundamentals of the FreeBSD shell for you, spammers in the public cloud, locking a user account properly, overgrowth on NetBSD, more utils, CTWM and Spleen, interpreting a trace route, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 458, Traceroute Interpretation, recorded on the 30th of May 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash BSD Now for online backups for truly paranoid people. And the BSD Now Patreon might be of interest to you if you don't like ads or want to support this show in one way or the other. Check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash BSD Now. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. We're recording not on our usual day of the week, but that shouldn't be too much of a uh, you know disturbance for you because you're receiving the episode exactly on the usual time. Uh, but we're making a bit of a change because of holidays and travels and stuff. And we still have headlines for you, like 457 episodes before this one. And so we might as well go into it. Starting off with a Clara Systems article, Fundamentals of the FreeBSD shell. Okay, so what's this is about? Uh, as you might have guessed, there is a couple of things you should know about the FreeBSD shell. And the article starts with, in FreeBSD 14, the default root shell is changing. Ooh. In this article, we will discuss the background and motivations for this change, along with its implications and advantages. Okay, I hope you got, got you excited. Um, starting at the beginning, the FreeBSD shell. What is this thing? A shell is software that allows people to interact with their operating system. The graphical displays, or before them, uh, with Windows and mice existed, early shells were created where computer operators would type simple commands at the keyboard to launch applications. Although some see the shell as quote-unquote primitive, this manner of interacting with a computer is extremely flexible and expressive. The command line shell thus lives on a quintessential element that defines Unix and the, uh, there are many shells to choose from, but they have many things in common. These commonalities reflect features that go back to the early days or the early design of Unix. And the fact that the shells has always been, or the shell has been deeply embedded. There are two shells included in the FreeBSD base system, SH and CSH, corresponding to evolutions of the Bourne and C shells. Early on, the consensus was generally that the Bourne shell was the better shell for scripts and programming, while the C shell was a better interactive shell. These strengths also influenced subsequent developments. Many innovations for interactive shell use were added first in TCSH, a fork of CSH that can be considered its natural successor. Similarly, the corn shell is built on the foundations of the born shell, primarily adding features more commonly associated with programming language or programming languages. Today, the born style shell syntax has come to the for it is the one syntax covered by the POSIX standard and the interactive innovations of TCSH were adopted and further embellished by shells that used SH syntax such as ZShell and Bash. Scripts included as part of a FreeBSD system for things like starting and stopping services all use SH. But until now, the C shell has remained the default shell for the root user on FreeBSD. And using the same shell for both scripts and interactive use has the advantage that knowledge is transferable. So changing the default root shell reduces how much a new user needs to learn. 
It also makes FreeBSD feel more familiar to new users coming from other operating systems, especially Unix ones. For a long time FreeBSD users who are unhappy with these changes, it is easy to revert root shell to CSH. So there's a way back. Okay, difference between born and C shells. For most common commands, which shell you launch them from makes no difference. The basic syntax for commands, arguments, and variables does not vary. The first difference you may notice between CSH and SH is that uh, where CSH typically uses a percent character to prompt you for input, SH uses the dollar sign by default. Although the unprivileged user's prompt is different, born and C shells alike use a hash prompt, or what's this thing called? Pound key? <laughs> Probably. Yeah, okay. As a subtle indicator, alerting you to take extra care when logging in as root and working as that. Once you dig below the surface, more differences emerge. Let's highlight a few of the more noticeable differences. First of all, the variables. When you want the shell to remember something so that it can be reused later, it can be assigned to a variable. This can be useful where you need to refer to a long file path more than once. For example, comparing assignments in the two shells, we have uh, set logs equals user jails mail var log or some longer uh, path even. And in SH, logs equals user lo uh, mail whatever long path it is. So in CSH, you need to use set logs equals something. And in SH, it's okay to just say logs equals something. So CSH makes a clearer separation between shell variables, such as this one and environment variables. Environment variables are passed on to other commands that are run, while normal variables are private to the shell. Taking advantage of this, environment variables are often used for configuring external programs. And in SH, assigning an environment variable requires two steps. The first step assigns the variable, and the second exports it. Newer SH implementations allow this to be combined in a single export command, but the conceptual difference remains that exporting a variable involves setting a special flag for that variable. And there's an example with the path variable, for example. Then there's a section about understanding redirection under the FreeBSD shell. Redirection allows you to save the output from a command to a file or pass it on as the input for another command. The basic forms of direction with pipe for pipes and uh, greater than sign and less than sign for input and output of files predate both shells and work much the same in either. So these operators deal with redirecting the two main file descriptors, standard in and standard out. There's also a separate output file descriptor dedicated to error message, standard error. Error. <laughs> this can be very helpful because you normally want to see the errors on the screen, not pass them on to other programs or write them to a file. And there's CSH extension that allows you also to redirect er, the errors using a very concise syntax like CMD, uh, greater than sign, and then the ampersand uh, following the file name. Okay, that's for this part. What else is there? Control flow, of course, uh, with if and uh, switch case, of course, you can use that as well. There's a section about aliases and functions and more interactive enhancements. That's, uh, this is dealing with like uh, remapping your keys and making them a little bit more easier to, to use with the functions they provide in other programs. And how to change your FreeBSD shell, you may ask. Well, on Unix system, each user's preferred shell is maintained alongside details such as the user's username, real name, home directory, password, and group memberships. This is traditionally maintained in the file etc passwd. For a system user like root, this file is still in or still be applicable, and you can edit the file manually if you wish. However, dedicated utilities for making such changes also exist, so they do some error checking and make sure you don't enter garbage there. FreeBSD supplies a 
PW utility for managing local users. So if you don't want to wait for FreeBSD 14, you might change the root shell to binsh with the following. So PW user mod, username is root in this case, dash s and then binsh. And for users, they can change their own shell with the csh, chsh command. Well, this always tips me up. Chsh is the command. And uh, to do that, chsh dash s and then the path to the shell you want. Cool. This is a nice article with a lot of resources and makes us hopefully excited for the coming changes with 14 in the shell department. Okay. Next up, we have uh, an article from Peter L.M. Hanstein. Um, and Peter is writing about spammers in the public cloud protected by SPF, intensified password grouping still ongoing, spamware hawked to spam traps dramatic. Yeah. Peter writes, this week was truly one for the blooper reel. A public cloud service provider let the great unwashed into the address ranges published as safe mailers via their SPF records with hilarious, if rather predictable results. Next up, we find an intensive advertising campaign for spamware aimed at our imaginary friends and the password guessing aimed at an ever-expanding dictionary of non-existent users continues. To the rest of the world, bsdlee.net is known variously as a honeypot a source of various kinds of block lists, or a frequent target of domain Joe jobs that contribute to the ever-expanding list of imaginary friends, also known as spam traps. To me and a very small set of other people, it's home on the net. Providing a set of services we need fairly painlessly on OpenBSD platform that really requires much work besides the odd package add-u-d snap followed by a sysupgrade-s. Yes, we jump from snapshot to snapshot on this one. Then the past week served us with three separate events that while actually harmless to our side together served to show that a certain subset of humans would perhaps be better diverted to activities that do not involve computers. A public cloud provider lets spammers set up within their published SPF ranges. The first event started on Thursday while looking for something else entirely in my mail logs. I noticed an unusually high number of delivery attempts to what looked like spam traps reaching the actual mail server. The earliest entry from that morning was, and then it's the spam mail, uh, there were several thousand entries of that type with a full log here. My initial impulse was, of course, to check the logs to see how they got past SpamD in the first place. Oddly, I found no trace of any activity involving SpamD and a random sampling of those IP addresses that would in turn indicate that they had been pass listed, most likely by being included in the permanent no spam D pass list that we generate here, mainly based on the published SPF records of domains we need to communicate with. Again, taking a random subset of the extracted IP addresses and using who is identified the IP address range owner as a large cloud services provider that among other things, also provide hosted or hybrid on-premises plus hosted email service. This in turn means that domains that use those services also include large segments of that provider's IP address ranges in their SPF records. Not quite knowing what to do, I tweeted, grumble. Spam campaigns sending from ranges in our no spam D tables hitting the actual SMTP service due to being in a major cloud operator's SPF records sending to a large chunk of spam traps. Still developing blog-worthy Y or N. Maybe there was a poll and everything. Uh, in addition to tweeting and looking for feedback, which was not huge, but nominated by the Y answers, I notified the relevant abuse at email address, abuse at email address 
by email, including links to the log data and the IP addresses. I also tweaked the log reader hinted at in this earlier piece so that any attempt at delivering mail from that domain in the future will put the sending IP addresses safely away in bo away both in the spamd block list and in the safety of a table that is subject to block drop quick from for six weeks after the activity stops and export it to downloadable block list as described in the article I referenced earlier. The abuse at handlers at the company I'm not naming explicitly here uh, were quite responsive and said that the activity seemed to be coming from their public cloud section. And yes, they were forwarding my data to their internal cert. As a follow-up, I suggested to them that using our slowly expanding list of spam traps in their outbound filtering might be a good idea if they intend to offer SMTP for hire in the future. What seems to have happened is that the miscreants here set up using a range of the provider's services, including domain registration, DNS hosting, and judging from the consistent use of root at as a sender address, set up some number of Linux virtual machines to do the spamming. Before the activity stopped later in the week, we identified two more, identified two more campaigns that fit the pattern. The data can be found here with links to the log entries for the second wave and IP addresses. Each of the campaigns appeared to have stopped shortly after the domains were deregistered. I never saw the contents of the messages since not a single one appears to have inboxed here. The, this episode has a few teachable items. First, that some subset of our list of spam traps is indeed incorporated in the address list used by the gullible spammers and their customers. And second, that if you run a public cloud service, you need to pay attention to what your customers do and be wary, be wary of letting them use IP ranges that have been announced as being really safe to accept mail from. I notified the cloud provider that I'd be writing an article about the events and asked for them for any and all useful input they could provide. And sadly, no such information surfaced by the time of writing. If any useful information appears, I will update. Event number two. A separate set of spanners market their spamming software intensively targeting our imaginary friends. While the public cloud spammers were developing, I noticed another campaign that was actively targeting our spam traps. Sent from, as far as I could tell, only three IP addresses with a total of 58 eight different subject lines all about spamming tools. It is possible that our campaigns did not target our spam traps exclusively in our domains, but the log archive, um, 1.5 megabytes compressed or 40 megabytes raw, serves as a testament that our imaginary friends are definitely targeted by some subset of the online marketing community, and they're pouring resources into doing that one byte per second. Once again, I'm not seeing the actual contents of these messages beyond what turns up in the logs after gray trapping kicks in. Not one of those messages finds its way to an actual mailbox here. And event number three, password groping still high, but bursty. As noticed in a previous article, SSH password guessing activity went up significantly in the days leading up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February. In addition to the data referenced in the article, the archive logs and the summaries of the numbers of attempts per day, March and April so far, linked. Uh, the number of attempts per day are consistently on a higher level than before the Ukrainian war started, with a new higher intensity episode going on as I, as I type. One interesting feature of the password guessing attempts during the last few days is that they feature a much larger number of new usernames that attempted than usual. This means that the list of spam traps here is now growing at the highest rate since the episode involving what was likely one or more phishing campaigns targeting Chinese users during 2019. If you have further data on these or similar incidents you are able to share, um, please share them with Peter. Cool. That was, uh, I'm glad I don't have these problems. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, you could build these spam traps with all available open source software from OpenBSD and 
be as bad to the spammers as they are to you. <laughs>Okay, in our news roundup, we have a cautionary tale for you about locking Linux and FreeBSD user accounts. So that's our security bite here. Uh, we found this on uh, cybercity.biz, which has a lot of tutorials about Unix, not just Linux, but also FreeBSD occasionally. So I thought this would uh, cover both uh, quite nicely. So like every other solo developer or sysadmin, uh, they do stuff using SSH. Some stuff is automated using scripts and others require SSH login. For example, one of their scripts log into the Linux servers and FreeBSD server using public SSH keys and does a particular type of work for them. They have a dedicated user account for that purpose called AutoVivec on Raspberry Pi for Ansible and custom script automation. So you SSH a user at host and then you execute path to a task. In other cases, it sends scripts and then executes them on the remote server and uh, that has a special IP address. So sounds good, right? So when they need to make backups and other tasks, they lock down the AutoVivec user account on the server so that it will not modify data on disk. And the example here is uh, user mod-l-l lowercase e or uppercase l lowercase e a one and AutoVivec or uh, on the other way is sudo pw lock-n AutoVivec. Okay. And here's the cautionary tale. However, they soon discovered that a user named AutoVivec can still log into the server and make changes despite being locked down on both Linux and FreeBSD servers. They foolishly assumed that it would work out of the box. But boy, they were in for a surprise, apparently. Upon close inspection on AutoBox, the RPI4 computer, they found that they enabled SSH multiplexing for SSH speedup a couple of days back in their SSH config file. So this is uh, for all the hosts, host star. They do control master auto, control persist, set to yes, and provide a control path that's in their .ssh directory, where all these, you know, connection, uh, multiplexing, uh, what are they called? Links, let's say, uh, or a representation for the connection are being stored. Okay, so what is SSH multi-complex, uh, multi-complexing, multiplexing? SSH multiplexing is nothing but carrying multiple SSH sessions over a single TCP connection. In other words, OpenSSH reuses an existing TCP connection for multiple concurrent SSH sessions. A locked or unlocked user account doesn't matter on the remote machine if a session is already established on the OpenSSH server. It will directly connect using the SSH. You can check this by using SSH-O, check and then user at host. And they see when you run this, in this case, master running and the process ID. Of course, the SSH sh command or the ss command will confirm the open session 2 uh, so this is sh ss minus o state established and do deport equals ah this is more uh going into specific protocols and they say the session opened yeah and you, you see which ip addresses the uh sender and the receiver has and uh the time alive and keep alive sessions uh, respectively okay uh, same thing on the server, just with reversed uh, sender and receiver. Okay, in other words, uh, that command confirms that SSH listens in the background on the server when control persists set to yes on the client side in the SSH slash config file. It keeps the connection open between the SSH client and the server to speed up the operation, and that is the root cause of the issue. Ah, mystery solved. From the SSH config man page, you can see or find that the control persist directive specifies that the master connection should remain open in the background, waiting for future client connections, after the initial client connection has been closed. 
then if set to no, the master connection will not be placed in the background and will close as soon as the initial client connection is closed. And third, one can set it to yes or zero, then the master connection will remain in the background indefinitely until killed or closed via a mechanism such as the SSH-O exit. Okay. And fourth, uh, if set to a time in seconds or a time in any of the formats documented in SSHD config, then the backgrounded master connection will automatically terminate after it has remained idle with no idle connections for the specified time. So here's how they solve the problem. Looking uh, or locking an account is not enough. It would be best to stop all processes owned by the username, in this case, AutoVBAC. In other words, they would do sudo kill all at dash stop or send a stop signal dash lowercase u and in the AutoVBAC user. And that is the correct procedure to lock down the account on both Linux and FreeBSD servers as follows. User mod dash uppercase L dash E as uh, above. And then do the PW lock dash N for the FreeBSD version. And then afterwards do the kill all with the stop signal to kill all the running processes at the moment from that user. Of course, you can kill it, but I just needed to stop them. And then when the backup is done, they unlock the user account and resume the session. So you do the reverse afterwards with user mod dash E minus uh, one, yeah, that's a one, not an L, uh, minus one, and then uppercase U with the user account. And same for FreeBSD, PW unlock dash N all the way back. Okay. Again, run the kill all command on both servers to resume all processes owned by the AutoVivic user. Remember, we sent only the stop signal. Now we can run the continue signal to say these sessions can now resume. That's clever because you don't want to kill everyone's session and then, well, something important stopped and couldn't. Uh, continue. So here you stop it if the process has a uh, trap for that and knows how to handle the stop process or the stop signal. And sick continue is just the opposite to continue operation where it left off. Okay, nice one. Good to know. <laughs> that's 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 a crazy amount of work to work around this. It is, but well, yeah, it's cool. I, I mean, I'm really impressed with the <laughs> work they've done. I don't know. I really don't understand why. Uh, when you when you go single user user processes get killed right uh yeah only the user yeah if only root is yeah only yeah, all the other processes it's go, like a like yeah. a soft single user mode so you can run updates and, and and backup yeah so it ensures no one else is on the machine and runs anything while the backup happens or uh you do something else it's a good thing about uh, zfs snapshots are atomic you don't have to worry about there's those. that you yeah. just snapshot <laughs> keep going yeah yeah, okay. Nothing to stop and start. <laughs> cool. So next up, we have uh, a screenshot on the OpenBSD Gaming subreddit, uh, and it is titled "I was able to build overgrowth on NetBSD," and the first comment is, "It's not not OpenBSD." Um, and so overgrowth is uh, a fighting game with with anthropomorphic animals uh, by uh, Wolfire Games, who. I think are the people behind the humble bundles. Um, ah, yeah, I, might, I, might I never heard about overgrowth. Yeah, I might not call me that one. Um, and overgrowth <laughs> has been in development for, I don't know, maybe 15 years. Uh, but it looks like the Ooh. source code for overgrowth was released a couple of months ago. Um, at least looking at the GitHub post, it was had the newest file is two months old. The oldest file is two months old. Uh, and so it looks like they released the source code and that is how this uh, user was able to build uh, overgrowth on NetBSD. This isn't like the um, thing they do with the, the Xbox development kit where you can run the bytecode in a virtual machine and just have a native virtual machine. This is the actual code that they have built and run, which is really cool. 
uh, it's great to see open source games. Uh, the assets are obviously not uh, without copyright. You still have to buy the game to get the assets, but it does mean you can play Overgrowth on, on BSD if you have a fast enough computer, which I think is awesome. Mm. Oh, nice. Yeah, cool. And then continuing um, with the news roundup, we have more utils from Joey H. Uh, if you don't know who Joey H is, he's a former Debian developer who is like micro-funded Patreon style to write um, uh, to write stuff in Haskell. Uh, and he's the author mm -hmm. of Git Annex. If you ever want to store giant stuff in something that looks like guilt, Git. Um, and Joey H has more utils here. Uh, more utils is a collection of Unix tools that nobody thought to write long ago when Unix was young. Uh, it began when I blogged. I'm a big fan of the Unix tools philosophy, but sometimes I wonder if there is much room for new tools to be added to that toolbox. I've always wanted to come up with my own general purpose new Unix tool. Well, after lots of feedback documented in many follow-ups in my blog, Joey wrote, "My main, main, maybe the problem isn't that no one is writing them or that the Unix tool space is covered expect, except for specialized tools, but that mo the most basic tools fall through the cracks and are never noticed by people who could benefit from them. And so the more utils collection was born to stop these programs falling through the cracks. So what's included? Probably the most general purpose tool in more utils so far is Sponge, which lets you do things like um, SAD, um, and then a regular expression to switch at root for tour, uh, etc password, grep-v, so not including Joey, uh, sponge slash etc slash password. I don't know what that does. What does the sponge do? Is that like T? So you would get the result <laughs> without the etc passwd? Oh, and then you put it back into etc passwd. Ah, okay. Uh, sponge, soak up standard input and write to file. Uh, and so there are lots more listed below and the goal is to collect more as long as they're suitably general purpose and don't duplicate other well-known tools. And so there's Chronic, which runs a tool until it fails. Combine, uh, combines the lines in two files using Boolean operations. Uh, Evernote looks up Evernote names and descriptions, which you don't need on BSD. You just type man Evernote and it's in the man you just page. know them. No, like it's in the man page. Why is it not in the man page on Linux? What the hell is wrong with them? Uh, it's, it, yeah, why? It's, the, it's the programming document. It's just man Evernote. It annoys me so much. Um, if data, not for, uh, uh, get a network interface info without parsing ifconfig output. Okay, you could read, okay. Yeah, uh, uh, if uh, any, run a program if standard input is not empty. Uh, is UTF-8, check if a file or standard input is UTF-8. Uh, lock do, execute a program with a lock held. That's actually really cool. Uh, miss pipe. Miss um, Pacman's uh, cousin. Uh, pipe two commands together, returning the exit status of the first. Parallel, run multiple jobs at once. P, uh, T, <laughs> standard input into pipes. That's cool. Uh, sponge. I can see uh, where, yeah. Yeah, I can see, I can see that'd be useful. I think that'll be useful. Uh, sponge, soak up standard input and write to a file. Um, TS, timestamp standard input, which could be useful. I wonder if it works with trace. That'd be cool to have for script debugging. Mm. Uh, Vider, edit a directory in your text editor. I think Vim does that. Benedict will be able to tell us. Uh, Vipe, yeah. insert a text editor into a pipe. Uh, Zrun, automatically uncompress arguments to a command. And then they're packaged up in Debian. Uh, it's cool. Oh, there's even more on this page. Um, I, I only read down to the releases. I didn't realize there was a to-do section. Uh, so P needs uh, uh, unblocking and uh, non-blocking pipes. It's because you don't want to block the pipe you pee into. Um, and then there are loads of other tools which are in development, which is pretty cool. Um, 
Dur empty exists. It's too hard to tell if a Drenger is empty in shell. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Like this if statement is like. <laughs> I don't know. I can never, I never remember how to write if statements. A cat tail allows catting, uh, catting a file that's still changing to a program. That's cool. Phoenix uh, respawn a process unless a user really wants to quit. Has changed. Um, we have wait on for that. Uh, temp put standard in into a temp file. And connect. I'm not going to dig into what connect does. Ah, that's really cool. Oh, and they're rejected tools, which is cool as well. I like that. Uh, I just wish that either head or tail had a bite off, uh, like a line offset mode in BSD, the way the good new tools have. Anyway, that's uh, cool. Only... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good collection. I mean, some things you use more often, you always like, ah, why hasn't someone written a tool for it yet? And then, yeah, the threshold is reached uh, <laughs> and then it happens. Um, but there's more about NetBSD, CTWM, and Spleen. No, not the body part Spleen, but we get to that. Um, back in the fall of 2020, the author here, Frederick Kambas, uh, was approached about adding Spleen to the NetBSD's X source repository. And needless to say, they, uh, wasn't, it wasn't difficult, or they were, he wasn't difficult to convince and imported Spleen. 1.802 as front spleen dash misc. With this being done, Naya add added all the required glue to hook the fonts to the build and then changed the default CTWM configuration to do automatic font scaling based on screen size and make spleen the default font. CTWM has previously been promoted as the default window manager on NetBSD and saw several tweaks and improvements to make it look more modern, notably with a nice orange themed menu. Below is a screenshot of CTWM, and for the people who click the link on our show notes, we'll find that. And one last thing to note, there are now live images available in current for AMD64, and NetBSD 10 will be the first release to officially provide them. With NetBSD slash EVB ARM uh, has had live images for a long time now, their availability on AMD64 is much welcome addition, as this allows this to easily test NetBSD's default CTWM configuration. The most recent version is Currently, NetBSD 9.9.990 AMD64 Live IMG G set can be downloaded in the link provided. Once again, thanks to Nia for doing all of this. Cool. So, and to complete the picture, Spleen is a monospaced bitmap font available in six sizes. So, that, that's quite nice from the screenshots here. But uh, you have to look it up uh, from our links in the show notes cool and then last up we have a blog post from phil lavin um and it's titled how to properly interpret a trace root or mtr and phil writes trace root versus mtr when a packet travels across the internet it travels through multiple routers the trace root and mtr tools can be used to identify the routers a packet passes between you and a given destination IP address. Traceroute is a one-shot sort of tool, whereas MTR runs and aggregates the results of a number of traceroutes. If you want to find the routers your packet passes through, traceroute is fine. If you want to diagnose a problem such as packet loss, MTR is the tool to use. Uh, in this blog, we'll talk in the context of the output of MTR, given it is more versatile. Types of trace. Traceroute and MTR support different types of tracing. The main two types are UDP and ICMP. Both trace types send a series of packages with an incremental time-to-live field. The idea is that if a packet is sent with a time-to-live of one, it will be rejected with a ICMP TTL exceeded message at the first, first router in the network. 
We then send a packet with a TTL of two and it is rejected at the second router in the network and so on. We use the source IP address and the timings of the TTL message exceeds messages uh, to build our path list. Some routers will not send TTL messages uh, for UDP or ICMP or both. In this author's experience, ICMP is more reliable type of trace. So it should be your first port of call. For traceroute, you should use uh, it's traceroute dash capital I for ICMP mode. ICMP is usually the default for MTR, so no parameters are needed. The output from NTMR command looks something like this, and you have a numbered list down the left, and then um, reverse uh, name lookups for IP addresses, uh, packet loss, the number of packets sent, and then the pings distributed by the last, the average, best, worst, and the standard deviation. And so you see the host name or IP address of that particular hop, the percentage of packets lost, the number of packets sent, the round trip time, how long it took to get a response for the hop, the average, best, and worst, and standard deviation round trip time since you're running the, since you started running the MTR. In the above MTR, you will see eight hops. The second hop shows us three question marks. That is because it did not send a, a TTL exceeded message in response to our probe. This really isn't uncommon and there's nothing to worry about. If the missing hops are in the middle of your trace, the trace got beyond that point, so it's not a problem. If all of the question marks were at the end, then this might be indicative of a problem, e.g. 100% packet loss from that point, or it might just mean that none of the last few hops sent uh, TTL exceeded messages, it's hard to tell. Uh, MTR hop DNS names. The DNS name shown to my MTR can be very revealing. Many large providers put information about the routers in the DNS name. In the above example, you will see lag-2.br1.th-lon.zen.net.uk. This is probably link aggregation interface 2 on a router named BR1 in Telehouse North Data Center in London, UK. As such, we can get, uh, we get to start to get an understanding of the physical path around the world a packet takes. And then it shows another trace. Um, we can see that the packet goes via Zen in London Zeo above net in London. Um, and lots of providers you like to use airport codes for their route locations, and they have LHR mm -hmm. as the location. Uh, Zio in Zio in New York, Zio in Boston. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know if those are airport codes. You know a lot of them offhand, right? <laughs> <laughs> some, some. Uh, this implies that the destination is probably a Zio customer, but we can't tell for sure as hops nine and ten are blank. Packet loss and round trip times. You will see in the above MTR example that hop eight, uh, yeah, I'm not reading that, has an 88.2% packet loss. This is bad, right? No, no. Uh, packet loss and increased RTT on a single hop is, accepted, is ex expected if that hop limits the rate at which it sends TTL, time to live exceeded messages. The key thing that many people fail to understand about an MTR trace route is unless packet loss or increased RTT is seen on every hop between a given hop and the end trace, it is not a problem. Take this trace, for example, uh, and at the start, there's no packet loss, and then at hop three, there's 60%, hop four, there's 60%, hop five, there's 50%, at hop six, there's 40%, at hop seven, 7%, uh, 40%, and hop eight is 40%. You can see that hop three has a 60% packet loss, and that loss carries all the way to the end of the trace, which has a 40% packet loss. This means that hop three is possibly introducing packet loss and the total loss between you and your destination is 40%. The other 20% can be ignored. What can we learn from round trip time? RTT of each hop is a useful metric to us because it tells us how long a, 
a packet took to get to that hop as compared to the previous hop. Take this MTR. It's really not helpful to just read lots of traces. Um, there's some numbers. You need to look at the article to see them. Uh, we can see that the RTT increases sharply between hop six and seven. Uh, yeah, it does. It goes from 10 milliseconds to 85 milliseconds. Um, we can see by the DNS names that hop six is in London, UK, whereas hop seven is in New York, USA. As such, we expect a significant increase at this point, which we'd expect to carry through to the end of the trace. Remember, unless packet loss or increased RTT is seen on every hop between a given hop and the end, it's not a problem. Uh, this is useful because it, if it, it wasn't obvious that hop six was UK and hop seven was the US, then we can clearly see uh, where the packet crossed the Atlantic. If we know that both source and destination are in the UK and we see a big increase in RTT between a given hop and the end of a trace, then we know something is wrong. Maybe it's going a really long way, or maybe a particular hop is in possibly introducing latency. And then a note about MPLS. You might look at a trace below between the UK, you might look at a trace between the UK and Australia and see the packet leave the UK on hop five and then arrive in Australia on hop six. In reality, it's almost certainly not going directly between two points. There will be an MPLS network in the middle, which will obscure the path to some extent. This doesn't really matter if you're using if you doesn't really matter as if you are sure that a Zeo hop is introducing problems, it doesn't matter whether it's London or Las Vegas, it's still Zeo's problem. Fun tip, you can press E when an MTR running to see the MPS labels for some of the hops. That's cool. And then a final note, understanding forward versus return path. The path, the path a packet takes between A and B is very often not the same as the path it takes between B and A. This means if you're going to ping a particular IP address, then your ping, echo request, is likely to take a different path than the response, echo reply. This means when you MTR a trace route and see packet loss starting at a given hop, it's not necessarily that hop that is to blame. Imagine a trace which looks like this. You uh, send from Zen to Zeo, a large transit ISP, to Amazon Web Services. In your trace, you see a 40% packet loss somewhere near the edge of the AWS network. You don't see any loss on Zen or Zeo, so the problem must be AWS, right? Nope. AWS might be might have a different path to reach you from their network. Maybe it's AWS NTT, another large transit ISP, you to Zen. Maybe your ping packet got all the way to AWS, and in fact, the response packets are getting somewhere lost inside NTT. The only way to know for sure is to take a trace route from both ends, uh, trace you to the destination and the destination back to you. Now, this isn't always possible. If the destination is somebody else's website, in reality, in the above case, the problem is still AWS's. They have a contract with NTT. NTT is broken. AWS needs to speak to NTT. In some other cases where settlement-free, free of charge peering is at play, such as on internet exchanges, this can be politically tricky as nobody has a contract or support agreement to fall back on when things don't work. Thanks, Phil. That was a great article. Yeah, I wasn't aware about all these particular peculiarities in between. So always good to know about these and have the right tools at hand. Okay, uh, so this would be the feedback and questions section. We also have feedback and questions, but we didn't put this in the episode because we uh, want to pile them up just a little bit for another episode um, and use this spot to talk about some of the events happening this year. 
for example, as at the time of the recording, uh, on the this is on Monday, but BSD CAN is happening this week in a virtual format. But there's also an EMF camp this weekend as well, and in person that is. And there's MCH this summer and EuroBSDCon in September in Vienna. Uh, and I was recently at a Postgres conference. Uh, this is one day pgconf.de in Leipzig. Uh, that was interesting because it was one of those conferences post-COVID where people saw each other after two years of not seeing each other besides video. And that was a lot of, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you again and, and stuff. I was not talking uh, or giving, not giving a talk, no uh, other involvement in being a simple uh, attendee. Um, but I also enjoyed it because it was a topic I liked. And uh, so it happens after the third talk, um, that was after the Monday coffee break or at the morning coffee break, I, I was sitting in one of the audiences waiting for the next talk a bit earlier. Someone else walks in and goes, hey, Benedict. And it's one of those people I don't recognize. And this happens fairly often. Either it's, an, it's a student uh, of mine, which I completely forgot because I have so many. Uh, but in this case, it was a BSD Now listener. It turns out they have seen me, but I have never seen them uh, or, or him specifically. And we talked a little bit and it turns out he was studying at my university uh, 10 years before I was. And so he went into the industry, of course, and had a nice uh, career as far as I could get. And so he was kind of interested in my stories, how the university looks like uh, or the faculty at the moment. So we spent a couple of time in the hallway talking, which made me miss a couple talks. <laughs> but that's okay. I, I uh, enjoyed that as well. And so overall, uh, conference was nice. Uh, also got some nice t-shirt again and uh, to my collection. Uh, overall, it was quite good. And... Uh, Hopefully this format keeps up and um, yeah, up to you, Tom, what's, what's your next one? Oh, that's really cool. Uh, I'm glad you could, could recap us, us being uh, Benedict's blog. Um, yeah, so there's, there's stuff happening this weekend. So I won't be around at BSD can because instead I'll be at EMF camp. Um, EMF camp is really difficult to explain. It's sort of like a, I mean, I'd call it a hacker camp, but it's a bit of a technology festival. Um, and so they're getting. 3,000 nerds together in a field. And obviously for nerds, there's going to be uh, internet and power to the tent as a, as a guaranteed service. It's happening in a deer park near a castle in Ledbury. Uh, the site chosen because it has a direct fiber connection, as you need for camping. Um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit involved in helping run, run content for EMF camp. And so I will be there uh, sat in a green room, which is always a weird thing to do. Uh, we've got plants this year. Um, yeah, and it's going to be really good. We've got <laughs> like five concurrent tracks of talks, um, more general technology rather than something as focused as a BSD conference would be, but it'll be really cool. Uh, and sadly, it's after you'll hear that you, you, by the time you hear the show, it will already be over. Uh, but if that sort of thing interests you and you've never heard it before, in the summer in the Netherlands, there will be May Contain Hackers, uh, which is a Dutch camp that happens every four years. Uh, it has a different name every time. So the last time was called Sha. And the time before that was called Ohm. And they've got these weird, weird names they always pick. And it makes it really difficult to tell people that it's the same event. Um, and so that will be going on. And then, of course, we get to look further into the summer. Um, I, I some reason, I joined the program committee for EuroBSDCon. And we're just today having our, have our first prototype schedule. And so I think by the time this episode's out, speakers will be notified and there'll be an actual schedule. And so... 
I think uh, Alan Benedict and I will all be in Vienna in September for EuroBSDCon, and we're going to we are really excited to to see real people again and, and have a BSD conference and have a oh, yes. have a Dev Summit and eat eat dinner. Yeah, you remind me of Dev Summit. Ah, I need to organize that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm also hopefully uh, we'll see people there, and I look forward to to having a conference in a in a format that I recognize and I'm familiar with. Um, the virtual one, uh, the one after this episode uh, has aired, has already happened. BSD can um, it will be online for reasons. I think it's safe to. Um, by the time they made the decision, it was still unsure whether it would happen or not. Uh, so they picked the virtual format again. So there will be recordings of talks and tutorials, and maybe some of them will be available uh, after the conference already, but some may take some time to post-process or wait a little bit. We could do a BSD can recap in one of the uh, future episodes, maybe. It will have to be talks we... at BSD can. Yeah, uh, there's that. And so this is certainly happening. I think Alan is somehow involved in it uh, with the video streaming going on. Uh, but yeah, he will know better than I can. I will give a tutorial that I pre-recorded. Uh, so don't uh, expect me to talk live for three hours. If not, if that if this whole tutorial does even last three hours, it's difficult to follow uh, a single person talking for three hours. Been there, done that. So I would have hoped this would have been in person, but maybe we have the chance at uh, Vienna. Uh, if if not, then all fine. We uh, I will provide all the material, all the. Uh, stuff afterwards so if you miss it or couldn't make it for whatever reason the material will be online for everyone because i'm always in the camp of hey it's for you i've, I've made it for you i might as well publish this afterwards it's not a secret at all yeah this is uh exciting because people are kind of looking forward to these things again and uh, the talks that are provided they are of the quality who are like yeah people have been busy during the pandemic it seems like yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to see people again. I'm really hoping um, it's been difficult getting content for conferences. Um, I mean, I ran two virtual conferences during the pandemic and the second time was a lot harder than the first time just to get people to submit and to come because people really got uh, fatigued on meetings and I don't think that's going away. But actually being in person I think is going to be really exciting. There's a bunch of people I've spoken to who are really excited to just come and like hang out uh, and we're going to oh, get yeah. to do that. And, and eat cake and, and it's going to be perfect yeah and if you've never been to a conference or if you like the bsds then check out eurobsdcon they haven't opened their registration yet but i'm fairly sure they will soon and so why not make this your first bsd conference and talk to the people behind the email addresses or behind the microphone even and say hi or just attend and have a good time yeah i mean they're great places to go everyone's very friendly i mean it was uh, speaking to people at um, FOSDEM that has ended up with me here, sat behind a microphone, speaking to Benedict. Um, really, really, real good people. I can't, I can't wait to see. Uh, I can't wait to see everyone. It's going to be really funny. Uh, Alan and Benedict always talk about how they have people come up to them and they, they, they feel like they really know Alan and Benedict. Um, and yeah, Alan, it's, and they've it's never really met. weird. <laughs> and people are like. <laughs> people are typically nice they they but when they see you they see the familiar face but for us it's like a random person but quickly <laughs> enough we have an understanding where you know where you know us from uh but since we're not doing this show with video anymore or only occasional streams um 
the realization is, oh, this is that person or that's his voice that I <laughs> that I hear is a bit different. <laughs> but at least from the people who've been around here for a while with, uh, with the video still going on, they still recognize us. <laughs> and you might as well read the name badges, right? We can't hide. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so that will be exciting. And yeah, uh, I think that's pretty much it for this week. We have another episode for you, as always, next week. Uh, we're not recording these back-to-back -back this time, but uh, we will always provide you with the fresh content as it hits our inbox. If you want to send us something, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Questions, comments, anything you always wanted to uh, listen here or have us want to cover, if that's a word. And it's always something... Uh, exciting for us to fill an episode like this and produce them for you so there will be another one next time